Okay, okay, okay. So I was sitting at group meeting one day. Group meeting's this weekly event where everybody in my research group gathers together and we share our science updates from the week. And we were talking about this upcoming conference called the Astrobiology Science Conference, or ABSICON. It's like the biggest astrobiology conference in the world. It happens only once every two years. And this year, it was going to be in Seattle, which is where I'm based. I'm based at the University of Washington in Seattle. And my professor, my advisor, my PI, whatever you like to call her, Victoria Meadows is her name, and she was the Scientific Organizing Committee chair. She was literally running the conference. And so she was telling us about all of the conference logistics, how she organized all the sessions, made sure certain talks didn't overlap, yada, yada, yada. And then she said, oh, yeah, and we got Anthony Rapp to be our keynote speaker. And I sort of just looked up at her with a puzzled look on my face and was just like, uh, no, it can't be. It can't be. You know, I was already fooled once when I saw that Doug Jones ran for Senate and I was like, oh my God, Saru is running for Senate? That is amazing. And then, of course, it was a different Doug Jones, some guy from Alabama or whatever. And I was like, nah, it it, it can't be Anthony Rapp. Are you, are, are you kidding me? And then my advisor looked at me and said, Anthony Rapp from Star Trek Discovery. And I just went, what? No. Anthony Rapp from Star Trek Discovery is coming to Seattle for Absicon? And she was like, yeah. And then it clicked. I was like, wow. Anthony Rapp, who plays Lieutenant Commander Paul Stamets, is coming to speak to literally the astrobiology community, the people who are actually trying to understand the possibilities, origins, distribution, and fate of life in the universe. What a perfect grab. And of course, all my groupmates were like, Mike, are you going to try to talk to him? And I was like, you bet your last dilithium crystal I am going to try to talk to Mr. Anthony Rapp when he comes to AppsIcon. So I tweeted at him. I tweeted, I am, all caps, spinning out of control, regular caps, over the fact that at Albino Kid, which is Anthony Rapp, who plays astromycologist Paul Stamets on hashtag Star Trek Discovery, is going to be the keynote speaker at AppsIcon next month. What a brilliant move. Starry emoji, Mushroom emoji, alien emoji, telescope emoji, Vulcan salute emoji. And then, of course, a little gif, or jif, or however you want to pronounce it, we're all inclusive here on Strange New Worlds, of Anthony Rapp as Paul Stamets giving a little wave at Rain Wilson's Harry Mudd from the Star Trek Discovery episode, Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad. And I also reached out through some more official NASA channels and eventually got his approval to interview him at AppsIcon, which I was so stoked about. You're wearing a command badge. That's right, yeah. 
I know, I'm sorry. What's I, that about? I you did, don't have a science badge? I, I don't, I don't. Yeah. Why don't you have a science badge? I should, I, I really should. But you know, like Tilly, I'm a scientist who I dream about being captain. That's, that's really who I am. Yeah, okay, fair enough. <laughs> Hello, my friends, fellow science geeks, Trekkies, astrobiologists, astromycologists, and beautiful tardigrades. Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. And before we get to today's interview with the one and only Anthony Rapp from Star Trek Discovery, let me tell you a little bit more about Anthony's keynote talk at the 2019 Astrobiology Science Conference in Seattle, Washington, which was, completely objectively speaking, absolutely amazing. You know, one of the best things about Anthony Rapp that really struck me throughout this whole event was how dedicated he was to supporting and learning from the scientific community. I mean, he was just such a curious guy. And before his talk, he actually went to some of the sessions, some of the other talks at ABSICON. He went to the NASA press briefing talks, which are talks given by scientists about their discoveries, not quite at a general level, but at the level that can be absorbed by science journalists so that they can then further translate the stories of these discoveries to the general public. And Anthony sat there and he absorbed all of this amazing new information that was just coming out at AppsIcon, highlighting some of the greatest scientific discoveries in the past two years. And then he talked about that in front of everybody. He mentioned those discoveries. He talked about how moved he was and how excited he was about, for instance, the possibility of methane on Mars and what that could mean for the geologic and biologic activity on that planet. And I was just so astounded. I mean, like, no non-science person necessarily must be interested in science. And I'm sure that there are plenty of Star Trek actors out there who don't really care about these latest cutting-edge theories and discoveries. I mean, that's totally fine. It's not their job to be interested in science. It's their job to be an actor and just to be a good human being. But Anthony was, and that was just so heartwarming to me. And during his talk, Anthony also spoke about the interwoven nature between the scientific community and the science fiction community, how one inspires the other, and it's this beautiful symbiotic relationship. And he also talked about how it's it's a very technical field, too, to be in the movie-making or the television-making industry. How he, as an actor, just plays one role, one very important role, but still just one role in that entire process, and how there are all these other people supporting the actors, making the film, building props, deciding on set pieces, and then after the fact, in post-production, all of this digital magic that happens these days as well. And so the collaborative nature of making a Star Trek show is very much like the collaborative nature of conducting a scientific enterprise. And he drew the parallel between all of the technical things and engineering things that must happen on a television show to all of the 
technical and engineering things that must happen in, say, sending a rover to Mars. Like the scientists who gather and analyze the data from Mars to make these discoveries were probably not the people who decided which bolts and screws to put into the Mars rover, and they were definitely not the people who actually put the Mars rover together, but all of this needed to have happened by individual people in different rooms, sometimes communicating with each other, sometimes not, to pull off one of the greatest collaborative feats of human history. And then Anthony decided to stop talking at us and talk with us, which was really wonderful. He invited people to come to the microphone and share their science and Star Trek stories. And because I knew that I was going to interview him afterwards, I didn't leap to the microphone. I let others have a chance. And one of the coolest ones was when this young lady came up to the microphone and said, Hey, so I'm Marta from Portugal, working in Germany. And I actually am an astromycologist. <laughs> <laughs> Were you aware of the work of Paul Stamets? Uh, no, actually. So I, I'm studying fungi in space, more specifically fond of sports. <laughs> so I'm very happy that you actually brought astromycology into the world because it's super easy for me to explain and to sell my work right now. You're welcome. <laughs> I have one question for you. How is it to travel on the mycelial network? <laughs> um, it, well, when I did the however many jumps that was, was it 133? Number 100, how many? 133. 133. <laughs> you want me to make 133 jumps? Micro jumps. Each one performed in rapid succession will provide a three-dimensional snapshot of the cloaked Klingon ship's position. Captain, there has to be another way. You have... I wish it were. I wish I didn't have to ask you to make this sacrifice. That was agonizing. That was a really hard day. I had a headache. And then that day, I mean, seriously, because I was like screaming for hours. <laughs> you may or may not know this, but when you see any, in a finished product of a film or television show, when you see you know 30 seconds of screen time, might have taken many hours to film different angles, different setups, and everything like that. So in that particular day, when I was in that chair screaming and sweating and spraying water on me and glycerin and all that stuff, it was, that was really hard. So that, that wasn't always so pleasant, you know, I'm sorry? It was hard though, then it's not fun. Yeah, but in that case, but I, I would imagine, like, I, what I loved about some of the writing, especially when, when that idea was first being introduced of my character being the one to, to navigate, is that it's, it was an experience of really seeing and being inside of the inner workings of something that was just theoretical. And I don't know about all of you in this room, but I imagine that you, you know, when you've had a breakthrough of some kind, when you've touched, when you've gotten really close, you've been working at an idea, working at a notion, and then you actually really see it come to life, that must be so incredibly powerful for you. And so I feel like that it's, it's a metaphorical or imagined way of making that real, but I think it was a beautiful way of making it real. And so that's a little bit of the beauty of Anthony Rapp in a nutshell. I mean, he understands on an intellectual level that the mycelial network in Star Trek, this thing that connects all of space and time in the multiverse, is a little bit of a silly notion at the moment. But he also really understands on an emotional level his character's connection to the mycelial network, that it is a representation of a scientist 
getting to realize the fruits of his labor. And I feel like this is such a magical thing to share with the world through Star Trek because any scientist, whether you live in the 23rd century on a Crossfields-class starship gallivanting across the stars, or in the 21st century working at a university, or a national lab, or a NASA center, you want to feel what Paul Stamets feels when he gets to ride the mycelial network. All right, one last note from Anthony's keynote speech that I really want to share with you before we jump right on into the interview. And this concerns what we'll see in Star Trek Discovery's third season. So Anthony was asked about the amazing technologies that Star Trek and science fiction in general has inspired, you know, things like virtual reality, things like the iPad, things like the flip phone, you know, things that we take for granted today that was first seen in a fictional realm. And Anthony teased a little bit of technology that the crew of the Discovery will be encountering in one of the first episodes of season three. Here it is. We're going to go into production in a few weeks, and so I'll be going on set and seeing, I think, new, brand new things that they've come up with, given that we're going to be interacting with uh, a galaxy that's 900 years in the future. They're, I'm sure they're thinking of all kinds of new technologies that we haven't seen before. Um, I don't, yeah, I, I think I can say this once. It's, you know, if it's spoilery, I, I don't think CBS will sue me. Um, one of the things that they talk about in the, in the first script I read is that this technology of, of uh, I don't know what, you, what it would be called, but there's a substance that you could program and then it would make something in real time. So like, say, I need to have a chair right over there. You go boop, 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 and then it like molds itself into a chair, you know, in almost, not instantaneously, but it forms itself into that. And then it could, you could reprogram it, it could mold itself into something else. I don't know, you know, some sort of like nanotechnology kind of thing like that. That's something that they're, that they're playing with. I don't know if that's inspiring to anything that you guys are doing. There are a lot of real scientific principles in Star Trek Discovery, such as the idea of the mycelial network, horizontal gene transfer, tardigrades. And so my very first question for you is, do you know if there is a science advisor for Star Trek Discovery? And if not, are they hiring? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that there's a specific staff member who's a science advisor, but I do know that Paul Stamets had at least one, if not more, meetings with at least some of the writing staff early on in the development of the show. And I don't know who all was in that room, um, but I know. So Brian Fuller, who's no longer, he, he, was, he hasn't been a part of the show for a couple of years, but he conceived it. He's long been fascinated by the work of Paul Stamets. And mm -hmm. he named a character Paul Stamets in Hannibal, which he was the showrunner of. He was very excited about using some of the work that Paul Samus has done in mycology, at least as a theoretical basis for some of the work he wanted to do with Discovery. So Paul eagerly, who's, he's a Star Trek fan himself, was thrilled and eager to lend his ideas to the writer's room. 
And I think he's maintained some contact with some of them. I've maintained some contact. I got to meet Paul myself at the season one premiere, and we had a great exchange. And it was, it, for whatever reason, it wasn't until then that I really was hit with the beautiful idea that because of the show, many, many, many more people are going to become aware of the incredible work that he's doing. And the, to me, it's vital work, and it's work that can make a real difference in our planet, like which needs help. Absolutely. So, um, but but yeah, he's not officially an advisor, but he's absolutely had an impact. And then I don't know if, you know, there's individuals on the staff who have science field friends or colleagues or what, or if they just read things on the internet that give them ideas and notions. But I do know that there's a real effort made to ground the science, at least in some theoretical, if not actual applied science mm -hmm. that exists yeah. today. Yeah, it's it's really amazing. And I think that the internet really helps proliferate scientific knowledge everywhere. And, and these days, the writers can look up some actual science, whether it's reading a Wikipedia page or actually looking at the journals themselves. Um, I remember reading that Gene Roddenberry, when he was conceiving of Star Trek in the 60s, wanted to write about the Drake equation in his proposal to NBC Studios for his new show. Mm. Um, but he didn't know what the Drake equation looked like, so he just scribbled something random on a piece of paper and sent it in. And luckily, the, the NBC studio executives also did not know what the Drake equation looked like, and so Star Trek was uh, allowed to go on. That's funny. Um, but these days, yeah, with the internet, it's so great. But if you know, if they're ever hiring a Star Trek science advisor, yeah, yeah I understand. <laughs> um, Anthony, why did you decide to come to the Astrobiology Science Conference? What do you personally hope to gain and also to give here at AppsIcon? Well, I met Melissa Kirvin Brooks at Ames Research. I don't know what the official title is. It's NASA Ames Research Center. I yeah, think that's it's, right. Yeah. So um, I want to be accurate but I was just so inspired by meeting her and her colleagues and getting to you know I didn't I wasn't aware that there was a a literal field of that being funded and supported by NASA I mean again we in the public eye we see the you know we see the Mars missions and all that but we don't know all the other stuff that's going on so that was really exciting and, and inspiring I had a really long great visit with them just got to ask them all kinds of questions I'm really interested in the science anyway but I've gotten even more interested because of being on the show. So just we had such a good conversation and and you know my my visit to NASA went well on all fronts as far as I could tell so that she just invited me to be a part of it and I was just excited to to even though I couldn't be here for very long to even glean what I could and just be in the room with this inspiring group of people. You know, it it seems remarkable to me that there's so many scientists, and I guess this has been true of science for all time, but who are working in a field that they might not ever see the exact fruits of their labors, you know, in, a, in an applied sense. They might not actually be alive when the breakthroughs are made, but it's remarkable that no matter what, they continue to work at something. Mm -hmm. And so that, that in, itself, in, in and of itself is inspiring, but, you know, it seems, it's always seemed impossible to me that there isn't life somewhere in the, how could, how could it be that out of all the planets and moons and suns and stars that there couldn't be something? Mm -hmm. So to know that there are people doing that work every day yeah. and that there's a lot of them and that there's a small, you know, section of those people who are gathering together here is just in and of, in and of itself very inspiring. So, you know, it was on a selfish level, it's really just cool to be in the presence of that. And then it's an honor to help continue to, 
stand on the shoulders of the legacy of the, the interaction between Star Trek and the scientific community um, that I'm now a part of both in a way. I've been really impressed with how you feel so inspired by the scientific community and how curious you are about science because, you know, I was inspired to go into science because of Star Trek yeah. and to see that from you, like it's, it's sort of flipped, but it's, it's going both ways. Yeah. And I really, really enjoy that. And it's, it's so wonderful that, that you feel this kind of inspiration from the really hard work that we do because we feel so much inspiration from the really hard work that you do. Thank you. It's awesome. Uh, so right now we are in an age where unfortunately people are kind of questioning the validity of scientific facts and evidence-based reasoning. And although you're not a scientist, you've been doing that for centuries. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. But Galileo, anyone? Galileo, yeah. <laughs> That's very true. Very true. Um, but I guess right now it's, it's kind of in a dangerous time politically. You know, we've got politicians calling real scientific things falsehoods and yeah. uh, alternative facts. And um, I, I feel I mean, really... again, they've been, I just did a music, they're working on a musical about Galileo that I've been doing readings of. And really? it's, the same, it's the same conversations, different contexts, but the same things mm -hmm. are being talked about. Yeah. So yes, yes. And yeah. <laughs> yes, I agree. We're in a difficult time and it's happened before mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it probably always will for whatever reason, but yes, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, so, no worries. You know. Yeah. Um, although you're not a scientist, you play one on Star Trek, which is a show that has always had and continues to have a really broad impact on society. So you kind of represent the scientific community on screen to a large number of people. How do you feel and how do you approach being one of the faces of science on TV? We do, and, and Neil deGrasse Tyson and Bill Nye and who else? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, no, it's an incredible honor. And, you know, it remains to be seen if, if and how our show in particular is inspiring people to enter some of the scientific fields. I, it would be awesome if they did. Um, we, we, I promise you, we involved in the show take very seriously the opportunity that we have to hold this mirror up to a brighter, better future and, and a future in which, well, not just a future, but a, a reality in which people of all stripes and shapes and colors can come together and solve problems with intelligence and care, which is, I think, what the largely what the scientific community is trying to do, too. So if we can in any way, by virtue of that, help shore up the scientific community's case for the importance of the work they do, that's incredibly meaningful. And that's really at the core of what I love about Star Trek. It's that there's a group of people out there from all different backgrounds and experiences coming together to solve a problem, not by, you know, who has the fastest, you know, gun out of their pocket, but right. these people come together intellectually and compassionately yeah. to solve their problems. Yeah, their ideally. I mean, every once in a while they do have to pull out their phasers. Yeah, but yeah sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> has portraying a scientist on screen changed your own attitude towards science? Well, I've, only in the sense that like I was, I was always a pretty good student. I, you know, I've always been kind of a, you know, like a nerdy, smart kid, but I wasn't as studious in all the science classes that I took. It was a little, I was a little intimidated and it didn't come as easily. Some of the theoretical, some of the, like the really nitty gritty stuff, like kind of made my eyes cross sometimes. And I was much better student at things that came a little more easily to me, like 
you know, the artistic things, the, you know, English classes and, and, you know, in, in terms of like reading novels and French class, like that's where I really, so I excelled. So I always like, I had my friends, we were all like the nerds together. They were more like the math science kids. And I was more like the artistic version of that. So I feel like it's gotten me more access to appreciating that I do have some also facility and skill with some of these ideas as well. It kind of like helped complete a, a circle for me of feeling like I can maybe belong in that world a little more than I thought I could, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, you know, it's just folks, it's, you know, scientists are folks who have a really specific discipline or a really specific area of expertise and training, but it's not that it was, a, it felt like it was a little more uh, a big wall than, than I think it might be in some respects, not to say that I would be any kind of expert in any of the, in any of the things that I talk about, but that I have a little, I feel like it's a little more accessible, mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. That, yeah. that does, absolutely. So I want to talk uh, about your character's relationship with cadet slash ensign Sylvia Tilly, yeah. <laughs> um, who's played by the wonderful Mary Wiseman. And um, when I look at Stamets's relationship with Tilly, I see one of a mentor and mentee. Sure. Uh, on this podcast, we've made the analogy to a professor and a graduate student sure. in science. And this is a very important dynamic in the scientific community because students are mentored and trained on a one-on-one -on -one basis with their academic elders. And so I was wondering how you, as the actor behind Stamets, would characterize Stamets's relationship with Tilly, and do you see it as a sort of mentor-mentee? Yeah, very much so. And I think the breakthroughs that have happened in their relationships are also that what's, what's gotten established between them is enormous trust on a personal level as well as on a scientific level. So both things happened where, you know, Stamets is the kind of scientist, it seems to me, who you really have to prove your worth to him in terms of knowing what you're talking about and he's not going to put up with nonsense and and laziness and and shallow thinking and uh tilly is so passionate and eager and committed and hardworking. so she had to earn respect but gained respect from stamets for sure mm -hmm. so that kind of trust but then also on a personal level they they become like deeply connected and soulfully connected to know that they have each other's backs in any scenario. So both those things, they kind of happen side by side. And I think that that kind of thing, not to say that all scientists should be friends and soul, soulmate friends in that way, but how could it not hurt if there's a kind of meeting of the heart and soul as well as the mind? That's really wonderful. I feel like when I see Stamets, and he, he can get a little bit irked, I suppose, at some of the situations <laughs> that he's put in and some of the other characters. I feel like uh, I, I can relate to that sometimes when maybe my grand scientific idea, I write a proposal for it to get funding, and then it totally just gets ripped apart and is denied funding. And I feel like in the first season of Discovery, Stamets is kind of like that. He's put in a situation where in order to continue his research, he needs to do it for these uh, war yes. wartime means that he doesn't necessarily agree with, yes. or a captain that really gets on his nerves. Yeah, he got conscripted. <laughs> he got yeah. conscripted by Starfleet, you know, to to kind of co-opt the research. Mm -hmm. And so it was like that, That what's the, full, what's the word? Occam's razor. Yeah of knowing that research needs to continue, it's important and meaningful, and hopefully in the end will still result in the, the stuff that he's wanting, but at the same time has to be used in this way. That's 
and understandably was such a source of some of the major persnicketiness, you know, was having, because it was like being pulled apart. It's not exactly the same thing, but um, a, a, an old roommate of mine years ago was writing a play about some of the, the physicists who were approached to work in, in Los Alamos on the, on the bomb and the schisms that happened within the scientific community around that whole issue. Right. And that kind of informed a little bit of my thinking in terms of the season one stuff that was going on because, you know, I got to, I got to see readings of the play and she shared with me her research into the worlds of what was going on, you know, and that, that really kind of resonated for me. You know, science is often all about, well, can we do it? And in the back of our minds, as human beings, we always want to ask, well, should we do this thing too? Yeah, will um, it be corrupted? Right, right. Know? Um, so I know you can't really speak too much about season three, but uh, where do you imagine Stamets and Tilly's relationship evolving as you go forward as, as this mentor-mentee? Well, I think that she's going to, Tilly's, you know, one of the things that's so special about Tilly is that she's, she, even though she's afraid and anxious, she's not, she's not afraid and anxious in terms of trying to, to do anything to find a solution to something. So I, I predict that Tilly's going to have made some kind of major breakthrough that blows Stamets away. Like that's something that I see happening down the road. That's awesome. Yeah. Because I guess as a, as a young scientist, as a grad student, you always dream of the day that you maybe write a paper that completely blows your advisor away and like blows his mind or her mind. And um, just speaking from experience, like my PhD advisor made some prediction about um, Titan, which is a moon of Saturn. Mm -hmm. And I ended up writing a paper in grad school that sort of explained why Titan was not at all the way that he had predicted. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, and it's all thanks to, you know, the, the breakthroughs in technology. Yeah, and, sure. Uh, the Cassini mission that, that went to Saturn, which was, yes. I, I don't know if, I mean, you probably didn't play a huge role in deciding that there would be Cassini in images in the first episode of season two of Discovery, but yeah. that brought tears to my yeah, eyes because yeah. I was like, that spacecraft made my PhD thesis possible. Yeah. And it's in Star Trek, which literally inspired yeah. me to be a planetary scientist. Let's shift gears to Hugh Colbert, mm. who, um, spoiler alert to everybody listening, um, comes back to life in yep. season two. Yep. And uh, Stamets and Colbert's relationship goes through a bit of a rough patch. Sure. But I think by the end, they sort of seem to work it out. Yes. Although your character is in a bit of... Uh, <laughs> not exactly 100% present. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, one of the things that I just love about Discovery is Stamets and Colbert and the fact that they are first and foremost brilliant professionals mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in technical fields, mm -hmm. exploring the final frontier, pushing mm -hmm. the boundaries of knowledge. And they just happen to be in a relationship mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. they just happen to be gay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on portraying the richness and the well-roundedness of this character that you've been given and the LGBT plus representation that uh, you're bringing to TV. You know, in the, in the years since Star Trek first debuted, it took a while for most shows to have not most, but any show to have any real representation that wasn't just, you know, stereotype or just like off in the corner. So that breakthrough had happened, but Star Trek was slow to catch up. So there were movements within Next Gen and I think Deep Space Nine and other iterations that there were from within the, either the writer's room or the cast eager for there to be some kind of representation. And for whatever reason, the producers or the network said no, they weren't going to do it. So... I'm, for one, grateful that finally that breakthrough happened and that I'm getting to be the one to carry that flag with Wilson. Mm -hmm. You know, we've both been out and activists ourselves for decades, so it's been a part of our world and our work. 
And it's very meaningful to both of us that we get to do that in this platform through Star Trek. And, you know, one of the givens about Star Trek is that none of these definitions of people matter in the sense that matter. They matter in the sense that they're part of who we are, but they don't matter in the sense that they have no effect on what job we're given, whether any crew member would remark on it. It's ne- it's just an, it's a non-factor in terms of access to opportunities. And so it was very important to, to, to show that. Mm-hmm. And it is very important, and it's and Wilson has spoken especially eloquently about this, that, like you said, that it's two incredibly intelligent, capable, accomplished men who happen to be in this relationship, that, that both of them are leaders in their field, and they're both really good at their jobs, and that they are also in a relationship. Yeah, all of those factors are really important as representation, and part of the representation is that the factor doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It's like this weird, it's yeah. almost like, it's not Catch-22, but it's like a, um, it just is, and that's part of what makes it meaningful. And so, yeah, we're, we're really, really proud that that's the case. You know, I know one of my very, very best friends, he's been a part of the Star Trek fandom for decades. He was part of the earliest, like, mimeographing fan letters, fandoms. You know, he's a little bit older than I am, you know. So he was early, early days of the first conventions, all that stuff. And he's gay, and he's been aware of the certainly sizable fandom population of LGBT folks. Mm -hmm. And the kind of hunger for that representation has been there very powerfully. So... Yes, I, I'm, I was personally aware through my friend Bill, also just generally aware that representation is important anyway, so then the, the confluence of it is really meaningful. Awesome. Just a couple of last questions for you. Stamets has some of my favorite lines from all of Star Trek Discovery. So I'll, I'll just name a couple of them for you. Um, like in the first season, uh, he's talking to Burnham and trying to explain uh, the mycelial network. And he's, he says something like physics and biology. Why would you think of them as separate things? Yeah, yeah. And I love that because as an astrobiologist, I'm at the intersection of so many different fields that you yeah. need to understand how stars work, planets work, life works to try to ask and answer the questions whether or not there's life elsewhere in the universe. And then there's also that beautiful, wonderful episode um, with Harry Mudd uh, in his first season where your your character is actually trying to pull Michael Burnham sort of out of her Vulcan shell and to feel emotions yeah. and um, recognize her, her attraction to Ash Tyler. And, and you say, dance with me for science. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I love that one. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and so I'm wondering <laughs> if, uh, if there's any favorite line of yours or favorite bit of techno babble that you still remember from, uh, from, from the series. Well, that, one uh, thing I've learned is that the, the brain is so much like a computer in the sense by the end of the season, it's like I've cleared the cache. Like I have, I have so much information that I have to download every episode mm-hmm. and then I have to like clear it. So the specifics of the lines have like essentially been cleaned out of my hard drive. But uh, I mean, seeing the scenes and moments that I, that are most powerful for me are, yeah, like this, the, the dancing, so much of magic to make the sanest man go mad had so much great stuff for me, but, but the scene with Burnham for sure, but all, you know, never hide who you are. That's mm-hmm. something that, yeah. you know, means a lot. Um, and has been very resonant for me and for all kinds of people. I think, um, that conversation on the shuttle was where I talked about physics, uh, physics as biology, mm-hmm. that whole speech, that whole notion about 
trying to, you know, what I'm, what the work that I'm doing, that Stamos is doing is about trying to get at the biggest questions of the meaning of the universe kind of stuff. Like that's the stuff that really I connected to as a, as an actor diving into this role and the idea, the ways that everything interplays and inter interconnects and that it, yes, it's theoretical, but then sometimes it can be made real through the research that we're doing and the events that happen on the show. That's, that's the stuff that really lights me up. The episode where we run into Hugh in the Mycelial Network and understanding how he got there, you know, and the, the idea that, you know, again, it's theoretical and it's made into sort of this fantastical, you know, storytelling uh, idea, but you know, energy doesn't die, it transforms. That's yeah. a, that, that we found a way to take that theoretical notion and then make it into a sort of metaphorical reality. That's, that's beautiful to me. Those, those kinds of things really, they're moving to me and exciting to be, that I get to be, a, a, my character gets to be kind of a conduit for that. A conduit for real life scientific principles coming yeah. to life. Yeah, yeah that, that then get to be brought into a way that also, you know, can resonate on a poetic level or, Definitely. you know. So we're here at AbPsychon, uh, which is a conference dedicated to trying to understand the possibilities of life elsewhere in the universe. Um, in Star Trek, we already know that the answer to that is there's lots of life elsewhere yeah. in the universe, but so far right now... Most of them are humanoid. Most of them are, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right now, we don't know yeah. if we are alone. And so I'm just wondering, on a personal level to you, what would it mean if at an AbPsychon sometime in the future... It was announced that we found alien life in the universe. It'd be incredible. I mean, it's incredible. It just seems—it seems utterly impossible that there's not. It just seems—it's so—it would be insane. It would make no sense, just from a logical perspective. It, There's—it just there's no way. How could it be? So yes, it would be so incredible to to find evidence of it. And yeah, it would be especially incredible if we found intelligent, some intelligent life, meaning that we could interact with one another in some way mm -hmm. and learn, you know, I, I saw a title of a book today that I love, I'm going to totally paraphrase it, but it's something like, are we smart enough to know how smart animals are? Mm. Like, you know, this, the, the research that's being done in terms of animal intelligence and the layers of how they're smart in ways that humans can never be smart yeah. in, you know, the ways that they interact with their environments in the world. We can never have those talents and abilities, right. you know, but we can, we still found a way to interact with animals, right? Yeah. And yeah. have relationships. So it seems to me, even if, even if there's a, an alien species that doesn't have vocal cords and doesn't make sounds, mm -hmm. maybe there will be some way that we could interact with them and learn and teach, you know, that, that's, that, those are some of the most exciting things about, science fiction about star trek that that when it imagines first contact and i hope it's a giant tardigrade when we find it sure <laughs> i mean that seems really likely because tardigrades <laughs> are ballers they're awesome yeah they can survive in all sorts yeah. of harsh conditions yeah they're badass so before i let anthony go i asked him if it would be okay for me to show him some of my slides from the talk that i was going to give at AppsIcon later in the week and the reason why i wanted to do this was because i actually put him in my slides I thought it would be cool to sort of do a Star Trek Discovery scene to summarize the main scientific point of my talk. So I went through my slides and I told them what I was working on, which is basically how much oxygen you can build up in a planetary atmosphere without any life. And this oxygen might serve as a false positive biosignature, which means that it was created without life and we should be careful not to mistake this oxygen as a byproduct of life. My conclusion is, I would like to imagine 
a Star Trek Discovery episode. Um, and I showed this slide with an artist rendition of the USS Enterprise and the USS Discovery. Exploring a strange new world, and there's a communication going on between them where the Discovery says, and I had little Enterprise speech bubbles that popped out of the starships that corresponded to a communication between the science officers of the Discovery and the science officers of the Enterprise. And then the brilliant Paul Stamets realizes that this oxygen is consistent with photochemical production around the star type, not having to do anything with life on the planet, yeah. to which Spock would only reply, Fascinating. Fascinating. <laughs> <Yes>. Perfect. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. yeah that's, thank uh, you. That's yeah. awesome. I wanted to thank you for spending so much time with me and also here with all of the scientists here at AppsIcon. Um, you've really given so much of your talent to the world and, and also your, your curiosity, which is extremely inspiring. Thank and you. also your love, too, because you connect with the fans on a, on a level that I just have not seen ever before from anybody who's been involved with Thank Star you so Trek. much. So, it's my honor. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate thank you. it. That's my interview with Anthony Rapp, who plays astromycologist Paul Stamets on Star Trek Discovery. If you didn't get enough of Anthony on Strange New Worlds, you should also check out his interview on Third Pod from the Sun, the American Geophysical Union's podcast who also did a recording with Anthony at the Astrobiology Science Conference in June of 2019. It was an absolute pleasure to meet the AGU podcasters, who run a fantastic show all about the scientists and methods behind the science, stories that you won't read in a manuscript or hear in a lecture. Now, besides Anthony's appearance at AppsIcon, there were plenty of other very exciting things at this meeting, including the announcement of NASA's next interplanetary explorer. NASA is pushing the boundaries of human knowledge and expanding the limits of technology. Today, I am proud to announce that our next New Frontiers mission, Dragonfly. Dragonfly is an octocopter that will soar across the skies of Saturn's moon Titan and sample for the very first time, the chemical composition of the surface of that world. A world that hosts exotic forms of chemistry and geology. A world that could potentially host life. I'll be back soon with more from the intersection between science and Star Trek. Until then, see you out there.